Welcome to The Intelligent Asset, a podcast on digitizing enterprise asset management, developing intelligent interactions, and building systems of intelligence for asset operations. For industry professionals who work in EAM and facilities management across transportation, the public sector, utilities, manufacturing, and large enterprises. We want to tie the global challenges we all share to the world of enterprise asset management and how we can all make change for the better, building a more sustainable collective future. Today on The Intelligent Asset, the reality of using continuous improvement. I'm Sam Williams, and today I'm joined by Grant Ford, author, management consultant, and expert in the field of know-how management. Welcome back, Grant, to part three of the series on continuous improvement. Thanks, Sam. I guess, Grant, if you could tell listeners a little bit about yourself from the point of view of an unusual engagement that you've had as a management consultant. Uh, Well, I've done... uh... I've done a, a lot of um, semi-unusual uh, things from uh, building industry um, um, through to um, asset-intensive in- industries, uh, but I, I do remember being asked to do something that I thought was um, really, really straightforward, uh, and turned out to be uh, so much so so much less straightforward than I thought it was going to be, um, and it was actually um, it was in the uh, it was in the electric, electricity industry, and it was to do with uh, um, switching. Uh, you know how uh, switching is done, and uh, to facilitate work in the field and everything like that. And um, the sources of accidents, and, and the the thing that um, the assumption going in was uh, young, young or uh, you know, inexperienced people were were having accidents in the field because they were, you know. Uh, not vigilant enough or didn't know enough or not experienced enough. And I think the most unusual thing we found was um, that the people who were being injured were the people who had been on the job the longest. Um, in fact, some of the people even training some of the other people uh, were, were actually uh, um, uh, being injured. Uh, and, and the only reason I'd say uh, it was unusual um, is because um, some of the, the people actually driving the whole activity <laughs> Um, were some of the people who had ex- experienced some of the some of the worst things. Um, the things that were uh, physically un- most physically unusual thing I've done is been just crawling into engines uh, that the so big that I can crawl into them uh, in railway railway yards, uh, which um, really shocked me. And finding somebody there that uh, basically said, "Oh, if you think th- this is big, I used to work on ship." Uh, motors, <laughs> you know, right. so it's just tricks of perspective, and and in that environment, uh, being told that yes, we probably will fix this, but uh, it'll be our grandchildren that implement it. <laughs> right, interesting. <laughs> Those sorts of unusual scales. Yeah. In previous episodes, we've talked about just what continuous improvement is, and uh, in the last episode, we touched on getting consensus on the applicability of continuous improvement. Today, we want to explore introducing the concept into an organization, and in particular, an asset-intensive organization. So, you know, in your experience, Grant, where does it work, continuous improvement? Well, um, in my experience, there really isn't anywhere CI doesn't work. Uh, but there is less fertile ground to, to plant the seed, I think, is the, is the way to how to get it to take hold. Um, 
um, basically wherever competition is defined in relation to others, you know, as opposed to competing with your, yourself or your own best, you know, um, there's a certain type of competition I describe to my kids as uh, um, we're no bloody good but we're better than you, <laughs> as opposed right. to um, am I better today than I was yesterday? So wherever there's a, 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 um, a, a degree of comfort, that you're somehow best in breed, uh, you know, but or best in class, but but no need to to, to feel that that's you, n- you need to move from that position. Um, it's some sometimes called, you know, the um, the enemy the enemy of the great is not the awful; it's the pretty good. You know, being pretty right. good is actually one of the one of the most difficult s- situations to shift a, a, an organization's perception from. You know what's what's the burning bridge? What's the compelling reason why uh, uh, this is good enough? You know, um, that's that's where it works least well, um, and that's where the change really is cultural, as we've discussed before, uh, where a change agency of some description, either internally or externally, has to change the mindset uh, of the organisation in order to help it go forward. Right. Yeah, I guess. Uh... It puts me in mind of of pride and the dangers of of pride. Um, uh, I guess there's a reason why it's one of the deadly sins. Well, it's pretty deadly when it comes to um, uh, am I better tomorrow than I was yesterday? Absolutely. Mm, Exactly. So talk us through this concept of uh, what we've notionally called the onion. And, and the idea of an onion in the context of continuous improvement. Yeah, well, this is a, a kind of a newly uh, constructed concept around what we're trying to achieve in the Certus ecosystem. Uh, but in fact, uh, the onion is now um, uh, affectionately known as the con onion um, because it is basically a, a, a cone made out of onion <laughs> or layers like an, uh, layers of cone like an onion. Um, so the onion or the cun onion uh, is basically a, uh, a visual uh, analogy for um, uh, maturity models, basically, and how, and I say models uh, because uh, on a people process and technology continuum, there are at least several maturity models that are in play for an asset-intensive um, uh, organization. Right? Um, so... Uh, it, it's basically a cone made up of layers like an onion. Um, but at the core of the idea is, is that the, the height that one can reach, uh, if you, if you were to climb one's maturity cone, <laughs> um, the height that one might reach is, uh, dictated by, if you like, the diameter of the base that you've actually laid down at the, at the bottom. So if, um, uh, you have, um, an aspiration, say, on a, on a, uh, on a competency, um, maturity, mastery kind of three-level uh, maturity model um, to just reach competency, uh, then you may have uh, created a, a series of choices for yourself uh, from the information that you may have at hand and from that constructed uh, uh, a path to this next level for yourself. And it might be doable. Uh, you could construct that, uh, you construct what you need to do to potentially reach that first level of onion and that first layer of maturity up the cone. Um, but, uh, if you were to lay down a more comprehensive base of understanding, again, on the expansion and contraction kind of analogy, 
uh, analysis in CI, um, you uh, could lay a much broader base of understanding and assessments against multiple models potentially and multiple uh, facets of your organization and of your data, etc., and be able to achieve that first level much more easily uh, from that wider uh, perspective, but also be able to traverse uh, up layers of the onion and up maturity levels of the cone for having done so. And and can you give us a, you know, a, a practical example of the real benefit there, you know, in terms of sizing the opportunity and the steps or the pathway that you plot? Well, um, if you you have a goal that's, that, that is defined from a, a, from a limited or a single lens, uh, you may actually decide that, you know what, all I need to do is um, get in new people or I, I might just need to train uh, someone uh, because I've diagnosed that this particular instance is a um, – um, user not equipped or skills or ca- uh, capability gap, right? And I might do that and find that um, these the goal that I was seeking, which was presumably not greater skills but higher performance, um, hadn't actually uh, actually been reached. Um, but if I had looked across the base of it and realised actually there's a combination of factors going on here, um, you know. My, I don't have the data that I needed for these people to to uh, to use their skills on. Um, I don't actually have a process that is particularly capable of doing that. Uh, and yes, I may need uh, more highly skilled people, but uh, my solution might look quite different. Uh, and uh, I may not have wasted quite so much money on one dimension um, by in ignoring the other two. And and. Perhaps an example in the asset management maturity curve, or perhaps in the continuous engineering environment. So, um, in the in the so look in the asset intensive uh, arena, there are some extremely powerful and wonderful diagnostic tools um, that uh, um, organisations may or may not be aware of. Um, they may then use one, uh, and I'm I'm thinking particularly of um, the uh, in the service ecosystem the really wonderful watchfire tool um, and the Kavaris um, ISO analysis that, that a company called Kavaris does in that, in that arena. And the, um, the result uh, can be um, very, very overwhelming. Uh, and if you take selective attention to it, you can uh, basically hive off on a, on a, on a or, or actually be paralyzed uh, by it by saying, well, hang on, you're saying on this maturity mo- model, I don't reach, uh, you know, three being the sort of the competency level on that particular model on any of these dimensions, um, and uh, therefore I, I will go and choose one or other or none at all uh, as, mm-hmm. a, as a result of doing so. Whereas um, if you take that particular report and you combine it with uh, another lens, which is a pain point lens, what what lens, what pain am I actually experiencing right now? What are my stakeholders telling me? What are my customers telling me? Um, what do I know is falling over right now? And I look at both of those together, then uh, suddenly I will realize that actually there is a core here that I could do. Um, and the starting point might actually be knowing what my uh, my asset data actually is and, and realizing that I don't actually have all the data that I need to actually make a decision like this. So I should go, wider i'm still in an expansion phase not a contraction phase okay excellent and, and so where have you seen it misapplied or potentially fail oh well uh, let, let me take you through 
Um, a, a little journey on that. Um, well, first, I want to t- tell you about somewhere I've seen it really well applied, uh, and then mm-hmm. I want to contrast that um, with with another one. If that's okay. So, um, we did some work um, a few years back uh, with a North American system operator. Uh, we were working in the control room. We saw um, when we arrived, basically twenty three ring binders of manuals. And we were told it took about six years to train a control room operative, right? Um, and fair enough, because there was something like $70 billion worth of assets um, being controlled by that control room, right? So $70 billion worth of assets at best minutes away from total destruction, <laughs> right? So, and a mantra in the organization that said the lights must stay on, right? So, so you know, it, it's... a Control rooms a stressful place to be. I'm sure air traffic controllers feel the same way, you know. But control room difficult place to be. So, um, but many of those volumes of manuals were taken up with, with what they call remedial action plans, and those are action plans that need to be recognised and enacted, and usually in less than a minute, preferably less than twenty seconds, before things start to heat up all over the, the network. Right. So um, that means that um, someone in a control room. Uh, is looking at upwards of 17, 18 screens. Um, um, there's some really important screens. It just says volt, voltage is going one way or the other, <laughs> you know, or supply and and uh, and consumption are, are mismatched. But but there are basically a lot of uh, diagnostic screens. Um, and basically, you've got what twenty seconds to a minute to uh, react, understand. Uh, seek the right remedial action plan and and initiate it, right? So um, pretty stressful, um, uh, high burnout, uh, uh, you know, situation to be in. So we looked at that and we helped that organization uh, to approve to the point that um, through a combination of two lenses, uh, a continuous improvement lens and a maturity, uh, a knowledge, know-how maturity lens, um, we managed to create a diagnostic triage interface um, that, uh, on a screen that basically had 18 interactive manual pages uh, that connected to over 6,000 tasks, including the remedial action plans, and we reduced that uh, situation uh, to an average of 11 seconds response time, right? Also, anecdotally, we told we, we, we shaved between two and three years off the training required for a for someone to sit in that situation, right? So uh, all in a living documentation system enabled flagging, process problems, collaboration, rapid response, all the good things that are in a CI kind of uh, environment or, and, you know, continuous improvement environment. Um, but you can really misapply that continuous improvement, which is to your question of where, where, it, where it fails. If you, um, you, you choose the wrong tools or you choose... Um, uh, an approach that does not gel with that organization. So before our arrival in that situation, there had been a, another attempt at trying to uh, refine that situation. And the, the idea was okay. that the IT department would take over many of the functions uh, and they would use it through a, a, an ITIL model and they would provide a lot of the um, uh um, analysis and response and et cetera, et cetera, and feed this information through to the um, control room staff. And it just, um, it's fair to say it just didn't work uh, because the control room staff were all of those things. 
uh, they they were uh, and because they were all of those things and they had all those those lenses, uh, they basically what they needed was a better way to do what they were doing, not another way to do what they were doing. Right. So. Right. Uh, if, if there is a common factor installed initiatives, it's it's uh, failing to produce a noticeable or measurable result quickly enough uh, uh, to build momentum. But it, it's most commonly that that happens because it, um, the um, the tool didn't fit the the, the the tool or the approach didn't fit the, the overarching philosophy of the people. Who are they? What do they know? You know, validating the, the enshrining the the ideas of the past, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You know? So I, I guess I would summarize that as trying to automate the wrong thing. Yeah, well, we've, we've seen the same thing in the building industry um, with work we're doing here. Um, there's, there's been a lot of energy around um, the consenting process, uh, you know, and, and, and many attempts at streamlining it and many attempts at uh, um, even trying to bypass it. Uh, with with uh, code marking whole systems of work or pre-approvals or et cetera, et cetera. But um, the consenting process, is, in my view, is, is is one of the most important and most valuable things about, uh, um, you know, building, particularly residential building, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, um, uh, that's not where the, the, the problem is. Um, yes, we need to streamline that process and make it more uh, quicker, but we certainly don't need to take it away. It's actually, it's, it's actually fundamental around... Um, is it capable? Is this thing capable of build, being built? And is it suitable? Yes, that's a consenting is a really good check on that, you know. Um, and that's not re- really where most of the failure ha- happens. It happens as it's being built. So you know, it's right. kind of uh, I've got a little cut uh, a cartoon that I like, uh, which is uh, Mickey and Goofy, and uh, Mickey walks over to Goofy who's uh, standing under a streetlight, and he said, uh, he says, um, "What are you doing, Goofy?" and uh, and Giffy says, "Well, I've lost a, I've lost a quarter." And Mickey says, "Well, I'll help you find it. Where did you lose it? Where did you lose it?" And uh, Goofy is saying, "Well, I lost it over there, but the light's better over here." <laughs> you know, it's yeah. that's kind of again, yeah. you know, wrong tool or wrong place or wrong way to look. Um, yeah, yeah. I I guess as a as an example at a a national level, uh, the leaky homes. Uh, issue that there is in in New Zealand is an example of a cultural and endemic uh, failure in in a whole series of uh, linked processes that you're not going to solve by just simply mandating uh, a a different way of building on its own. There's just a whole lot of dimensions to how New Zealand ended up in a in a leaky homes uh, scenario. Yeah, that's uh, one of the unfortunate, um, uh, you know, um, uh, events in in that particular industry's history. Um, I I remember a um, uh, a similar catastrophe uh, for a courier company in the UK many years ago, where it uh, had brilliantly de- decided that there was a whole new way to do this. And uh, had proven it and tried to do it, and then uh, uh, that the week that they implemented, basically had taken uh, had to get every taxi cab in uh, <laughs> in London uh, d- delivering parcels while they unwound it and put it back. I mean, sometimes you know it, it's systemic. If it's systemically, uh, it's got a systemic problem, or you know, or, or in that particular leaky home situation, a, a component um, that goes in early um, that is discovered late. Uh, it, it's uh, uh, you know 
it, it's uh, difficult to unwind that. It's not it's not difficult to improve it going forward, but it's very difficult to remediate it. Yes. All right. Let's talk about the cultural shift that's necessary and and why that can be a reason for failure. Literally, we just touched on that. So yeah, there's many. Um, well, um, the most important thing is to understand um, the existing culture. You know, I mean, you, you can't. Um, Sometimes we're referred to as change agents, you know. Uh, um, we certainly have done change management projects. We've, we've certainly done all those sorts of things in my line of work, right? Um, and and they're just done using a continuous improvement lens and the and the skills and techniques. So, but in, inevitably, uh, shifting from what you do now to what you what you do next involves change, right? Uh, and as you've said earlier, uh, you know there are people here, and there are people who have history. Uh, and and habits and behaviours and understandings that they've built up over time about how they are and how the company are and how they are in the company and how everything works, right? So, um, and there are levers that you can pull inside uh, different uh, cultures um, that will allow you to move them forward enough. But you need to understand what, what they are and where they are before you before you begin. And they and they are and not even subtly different. Sometimes they are sometimes very different. Uh, in different different working groups, so uh, that's the first thing. So appreciate, appreciating that if there is going to be a new way to work, there will be fear, and there will mm-hmm. be apprehension in the organisation uh, from those who like and have thrived under the existing way we work. <laughs> you know, there there is always going to be um, uh, uh, you are go- always going to have to make a compelling case. Uh, and, and you're going to have to make a compelling case that is compelling, not to you, but to the people in that culture <laughs> um, who are, you know, uh, who, who would be motivated, motivated or driven by uh, the idea of that. You know? So that's right. that's probably the single most important thing is to validate and celebrate what you've got, and recognize. And, and and would you include those uh, in your top tips for for making continuous improvement successful? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, you know what that that old uh, there's a lot of one line sayings in the world like you know fools rush in where angels fear to tread and all those sorts of things. Uh, um, and uh, you, people can run amok um, holding the banner of anything. You know, um, it, it's there's a sensitivity towards understanding who you are and how you would move, uh, you know, and that being who being the collective organisations uh, as well. How would that culture move? Um, it's, it's really, really important to understand that. Um, uh, sometimes uh, uh, even talking to uh, uh, a CE recently says, oh, but you're being so flexible, you're being so accom- so accommodating. And I say, no, I'm looking for the path of least resistance to the goal. I'm not looking for the path of least resistance. <laughs> I'm looking for the to the goal. Let's find out what the goal is and how we might actually actually get there. So, um, and there will be many people in organisations who have already had better ideas about how things could be better, and they they may not necessarily have thought through how they might be better for everyone, <laughs> but they will certainly have thought, thought through how they might be better from them <laughs> for them. You know, and, and so it's a case of working out how to harmonise and expose those. Uh, um, those different lenses, different views, different understandings into something that you can coherently uh, um, form a consensus around maybe moving from here is a good idea. And, and I guess at the end of the day, 
what we're talking about here, even though it is business process, it is about shifting your business culture to be able to achieve the outcome that it is that your uh, organization is there for. Yeah, well, you're a people, process, and technology dynamic. Uh, and uh, um, if any one of those things is not working uh, to, to, to the plan, uh, not the continuous improvement plan, to the plan that you are continuously improving through, <laughs> right, um, then, uh, then, you know, it's, it's not going to fly. Uh, and and culture is not something you can impose either. Um, you you can influence culture, uh, you know. And and um, I I tend to talk to um, um, when I talk to C's and, and execs generally about change. I talk to them about two types of forces that they can use. Um, there is sumo and judo, basically. Um, and sumo is a force that you use where um, uh, and to really to be avoided <laughs> at any cost. Uh, Unless you significantly outweigh uh, who, <laughs> who you're doing, but even then, um, the, you're, the thing you're opposing, there will be collateral damage around that, uh, mm-hmm. around around using that 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 greater the greater force. Whereas judo is the subtle art of uh, using the um, momentum the individual or the uh, area already has, and seeing with by um, using that momentum and flipping it, uh, you know, three or four degrees in this direction. Um, that you're going to bend by a series of maneuvers, um, uh, bring it around into the, into the alignment that you actually want to move. So, um, judo over sumo, uh, most of the time, uh, almost all of the time, I would say. Excellent. And that's the perfect place to, to land episode three on, uh, the series on continuous improvement. Thanks very much for your time, Grant. And, uh, I expect that you're looking forward to Christmas. I love Christmas. (laughs) What else can I say? (laughs) There we go. Well, it it has cone-shaped trees. So I'm I'm sure decorating the Christmas tree in your household must um, follow a a continuous improvement methodology. Uh, uh, It is continuously evolving, but let's put it that way. Anyway, thank you very much, Sam. I've enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. For more on getting the most out of the world's leading asset management system, IBM Maximo, check out certasolutions.com.